Welcome to Stories of Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw. That would be your Chickasaw native, your Chickasaw Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And we got the treat of all treats. We got the funniest man alive, and he's going to make us laugh for hours and hours and hours. And there's never any letdown when you say, this guy's funny. Okay, be funny. Be funny now. He is one of these shooter guys trained by Carl Gotch. He's won all kinds of awards. He's in Hall of Fames. He's from the most famous wrestling families. There is the great Malinkos. He is Mr. Joe Malenko, Jody Simon. Jody, welcome to the show. How you doing? Good to be here. Okay, Jody, be, funny. John be funny. Jody, John, and Jerry. I hate I hate when somebody builds you up and go, hey, this guy's like really really good speaker. This guy's really funny. Okay, go ahead, <laughs> dude. Stop. Be funny. Stop. Be All funny. right, Jody. Jody, make us laugh. Now, uh, <laughs> my, hey. my age, don't put, don't put that. Yeah, you know, I've got I've got some heart issues. Don't put that much pressure on me. Jody, Jody, man, have you had play. anybody die on you yet? <laughs> Just me twice. Yeah, wait, wait, well, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, Jerry died years ago. He won't go to the cemetery. He just won't check. He like Michael Hayes. He just won't check in the cemetery. He's been dead for years. No, yeah. We Tim White was supposed to be on our show, and he pulled off on the state of Texas. God bless Texas. On his way to do something with Stone Cold or something, and he was going to do his uh, phone off his phone, and he got mad at us. Told me and Jerry to fuck off, and hung up on us, and didn't talk to us, and then died uh, a few months later. So technically, yeah, we've had someone die on the show. Gene wow. LaBelle's another one. We had Gene That's LaBelle, right. But two, We're gonna weeks have... be, two weeks before he was supposed to come on, he, he he didn't commit. He didn't keep his commitment to us. That's right. He he died very <laughs> selfishly. He died, and that that, that makes me feel real comfortable. Yeah, we had another one. Who, who's, uh, you can always do the weekend. You can always do the weekend at Bernie kind of thing. Oh yeah, the the Greek guy, Mike Pappas, he was supposed to come on. We had him booked too, and he he croaked on us also. Yeah, well, hopefully I hopefully I survived this call. Hopefully I survived this call, and I'm not dead immediately thereafter. And we had less. Well, uh, yeah, we have for at least two days because you got Bobby Lutz and their cracker company. <laughs> Damn it. Okay, I'm going. I'm done. <laughs> we had we had Les Thornton, Les Thatcher, Les Thornton Les. <laughs> on here, and it took us like two or three months, and Jerry said, don't die, okay? Just don't die until we get you on, <laughs> until we get you on air. And, and now, they're older. Now, if he wants to die, it's okay, because we they're were older. Yeah. yeah it, that, uh, Les is older. We had Les on, you know, and Les, is, you know, Les has done everything in the damn business except winning the junior heavyweight title, and uh, John introduced him as Les Thornton. Yeah, I did. They don't even sound alike. No. Yeah, we had we had who was it on Rip uh, Rip Rock Rock or not Rip Rock Rip, Rock Riddle uh, Rock Riddle. Rock Riddle. I, I, I had to, I probably called him uh, Rip Rogers about five times. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> and and he I'm would old. I'm him. old. And he yeah. corrected me, and he'd go, I'm, "I'm sorry, Rip," and he keep going. And Jerry was actually not meaning to do it. It was great. <laughs> It's your character. Yeah. Hey, hey, Jody. Well, welcome aboard there. Your family, you know, and I've known, I've known your dad since I got in the business out in Oklahoma. There, where I think you were a puppy just with, yeah, riding in a trailer along with side of you and your ugly brother, Dean Malico. Let's, we can't, we can't fail to mention Dean Malico, the guy with a thousand and one holds. How many holds do you have? And did you, did you teach or did you teach any of those holds to your brother? I taught him every single hold except two. I held out two just to make sure that he wasn't gonna wasn't gonna come ahead on the on the come out ahead on the mat. So you know a thousand and three. That's right. You have a thousand and three. Thousand three holds. Cool. This 
this is a damn scoop job we're getting right here now. You know? <laughs> yeah. Joe Belico which, has the which, which one of those? Which one of those were your favorite hoes? Um, yeah, you're putting me on the spot, man. They all, a, they, it's a, like selecting a favorite match, man. They're all yeah. my favorite match. What's your I was favorite? a big. I, I was a big, I was a big straight belly to back suplex guy. I just, and that comes from the Gotch thing, because Gotch kind of, I don't know if he coined the, I don't know if he coined the whole German suplex thing. They say, they say he did. Who the heck knows? But um, yeah, I was a big, I, I was a big suplex guy. And you, hey, and no. eventually you get to learn to do it. Eventually you learn to do it real well because once you've knocked yourself out a few times, yeah. you just start, you start, you start going back the right way. Yeah, the back of your head developed that little bump on it, and that bump gets sore, and you say, "Hey, man, there's got to be a better way to do this." Yeah, I had I I I had multiple concussions that I in that I did upon myself. Nobody ever, nobody really knocked me out. I knocked myself out. Yeah, Jody, Jody, being a second generation uh, 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 superstar in our business, there, tell us a little bit. When when was the first time you ever knew that your dad was was good? I know it. Growing up and everything, you know, he went out of Malenko, and you were you were you were Simon, you know, after the name. And, uh, but when did you know that uh, Boris Malenko was your dad? I mean, you knew he's your dad. <laughs> I don't, I don't think you had to get a paternity test for that. But anyway, what is a fraternity test or paternity test? Whatever you want it to be. Okay. <laughs> but one of those tests. I mean, growing up, I don't... you know, when when did you realize my dad's something special? What you was? I knew. I, look, I'm, I knew my dad. I knew my dad was in the business from the day I was born. I just um, number so number one, he wasn't he wasn't Boris Malenko when we first got started. You know, we started up in he started up in Jersey, uh, the New York area back in the day for Vince Senior, and um, you know it was just an amazing territory back then. Every territory has been amazing if you talk to the people in the territory. Um, you know, at, at that point in time was Bruno San Martino, my dad, Bobo Brazil, Wahoo was coming in through there. Um, Pedro Morales, I think it was kind of starting. He came in a little bit later. So I mean, it was you know, it was, it was a amazing place with a bunch of giants. I mean, I I knew, yeah, you know, I knew my dad was in the business from the get go because I'd always tell the same stories. But yeah, you know, we would have we'd have the Kentuckians show up at our house in Irvington, New Jersey, and you know, you'd have all these people looking, going, "Oh my God, they got giants walking in there." And then the next day, we'd have you know, Sky Low Low and the you know the midgets walking in i don't know if midgets is even appropriate anymore but um how yeah, about hey yeah. shack calhoun you didn't discriminate against heavy set people did you <laughs> stacks <laughs> never visited us but the first time my brother met met him he was hysterical crying he was scared to death of him yeah i so dressed by stacks in europe I, I, I realized later nobody wanted to dress by him so i, I, I was the, i was the american young boy that got stuck with him yeah. well i would yeah. I, I actually teamed up with haystack several times when i very first got in the business what a what a super nice guy he was man and you yeah. know he drove he drove that jeep wrangler around every time and when he he's when he started doing well and we had the body shop going when he buy a new jeep wrangler a Wagoneer, well, no, it wasn't a Wagoneer, it was a one was real big. He would come down to the body shop, and he would, we would have to, to, to take out his seat and re-weld his seat back in so he could he could sit there comfortably. So everyone Like Jerry Blackwell there. did it? Like Jerry Blackwell. Did any of you guys ever drive with Jerry in the day? No, no. Yeah, no. I mean, he, you, you couldn't sit behind him because he had to have a seat all the way back into the back seat just to be able to fit himself. Yeah, right. yeah. Big, big boys. 
Well, he didn't know Bristol Brothers Body Shop, or we would have customized that thing where he could have got <laughs> that turf in there. That's the reason ASAC came to us because, and then they went through a safety inspection. Believe it or not, we passed at the body shop all the safety inspections for him. Yeah, I wonder oh, how that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, come on. My brother knew come a guy. On. Yeah, my brother knew a guy. Knew a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you could have got a Bradley fighting vehicle past the safety inspection sticker, the Briscoe Brothers Body Shop. <laughs> so anyway, enough knocking Briscoe Brothers Body Shop. I like Briscoe. I gotta oh, have a new no, shirt, by the way. You got a T-shirt, man. I do. I mean, but I can't find it. I need a new one. You gotta have fifty of them, John. I'm I do, every, but I every can't. Every time we get them. on, I need a new shirt. Jerry? I need a new shirt. Yeah, please. I packed them somewhere safe. It's <laughs> safe, <y 'all>. yeah. <laughs> so when I get done, is all. When I get done, am I going to be saying I went on their deal and is all I got was this lousy shirt? Yes. You're yes. not even going to get a shirt, Jody. <laughs> wow. I know that. I know who I'm dealing with. I know. I know who I'm dealing with. Yeah. So anyway, you're having all these all these strange guys come into the neighborhood. You're having a security call on you know, the gated community that you were living in at the time. All they thought we were circus guys. Yeah, well, yeah. And uh, you pack up your trailer and you're gone in six months or something like that. But did you travel around a lot or you did your dad kind of keep you in one spot or did you guys travel as a family where you went? No, we we traveled. We were on the road with him as he went from territory to territory. I mean, we did that you know, until we finally settled in Florida back in 68, I think it was. Uh, we came here the first time in 62, 63, but it was just in and out when he really first started down here. He stayed. We went back up north, and we came back here in 68. But I was telling you before that my dad didn't start in the business as Boris Malenko. He started as – well, he really started as Larry Larry Dugan, I think, was his first name. Then eventually he became Boris von um, uh, Otto von Krupp because, you know, again, these were this was a time when Germany was still viewed as, you know, an evil place and they did all these terrible things. So my dad, my dad always was a heel. So, you know, to be a bad guy, you wanted to play off of the best thing you could. And so he was going to be a German Nazi guy and he had a long flowing robe. He was about 265 at the time. My dad was only 5'10. So he was the Jewish guys, the Jewish guys playing the German Nazi. Oh, so <laughs> I'll tell you another story later on, but go ahead. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Well, that's a separate, this is a separate. Okay. So I'll, I'll segue over to this real quick, then I'll come back. But so my dad's, my dad's in Miami beach and uh, you know, Miami beach, fairly large Jewish population, <laughs> a little bit. And uh, they're at the Miami beach convention center and they're getting ready to wrestle. My dad's standing around and some older Jewish lady comes up to me. She goes, I know who you are. You know, your name is Larry Simon. You're really a Jew from New Jersey. You're not a lousy Russian, you know, and she goes on and on and on. And so like, later on in the night, She's right there. My dad sees her and I'm standing off the side and she's screaming at the top of her lungs, kill him, kill that lousy Russian son of a bitch, kill him. Because we always talk about how, you know, if you did this right in the day, you suspended, you know, disbelief. Right. So he was, he was, a, even though he was who he was and people knew that he was, a, he was a Russian and he moved to the Russian piece because all of a sudden you went to the cold war stuff from, you know, from Nazi and world war two, you went to the cold war stuff. So he's, picked up on that and figured he'd stay a heel and probably now he'd be um yeah i we could probably pick a couple different groups that he would become named after or tag his name <laughs> on <onto. laughs> well you know hogan hogan zeros which i grew up loving was all the guys who played the the, the main nazis were jewish 
it was, kind of, it was kind of their way of uh, sticking it to him a little it's bit. A little big. <laughs> That's right. Colonel Clank, uh, Sergeant Schultz, General Burkhalter, I guess, were all Jewish, Jewish actors, and they played the Nazis. Yeah. So my dad was a my dad was a Jew from New Jersey who played um, who played a Nazi wrestler, and and he decided. <laughs> And and the question the question still remains because I don't remember my dad ever telling me for sure who gave him the name Boris Malenko, and somebody said it was Vince Senior, but I'm not sure if it was or if it, or if my dad came up with it himself. And, and what was your, do you have a favorite territory that you were in? Uh, when your dad was when your dad was working, not you. I really liked um, I really liked the San Francisco territory, you know, for Roy Shires at the time. Because, well, first of all, my dad was there. Um, Pedro um, Pedro Godoy was out there. Carl came out there. Carl lived in a little place behind. So Ray Stevens had a house, and he had a pool area. And in the back, he had a little house kind of thing. And Carl and his wife lived back there. So it was a, it was a, it was a pretty neat time. We, you know, we traveled the Bay Area, and it was just a beautiful place at the time. And there were no earthquakes happening, so I was okay. I, later on, I discovered the whole world of earthquakes out in L.A., but. Yeah. Was Pat when, when you were out to you first? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. Was Pat out there also? Pat Patterson? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Pat and Ray were probably teaming up at Pat, that time. Pat and, Pat and Ray were teaming up at the time. Ray Ray was, I mean, Ray was unbelievable. He was and how old were you? How old were you? Were you in, in, in San Francisco? Do you remember? So I was um so was, that would have been like sixth grade. So how old the sixth grade? So did, was it Boris Malenko at that time, or was he still? Yeah, no, he was Boris Malenko at that time. Yeah. Yeah. What territory do you recall where he, he was first Boris Malenko? I know you're six. I'm, that's putting a lot of pressure on you, brother. I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure if he. I'm not sure if he came down into Texas, and that's where he became Boris the first time. I'm not. I'm not positive. Right. Texas was not, uh, look. Texas was another great territory for him because, yeah, he just had he had a great run. He had a great run in Texas and, you know, I had a chance to hang around, you know, back then all the Von Erichs were kids and, you know, the punks were pretty young themselves. So all those guys were hanging out and just a great territory. Just, it was rugged because everything was so damn far away that, you know, being on the road was tough. When you were in Amarillo Fonks there, you mentioned the Fonks there, and you were growing up at the same time, of course, with, with Dory and Jesus. Did you have any uh, really close friendships with him, or were you just like you know? No, nah, I mean, I look, you know, I had met him in passing. I really didn't get to know, I really didn't get to know Terry until much later on in life. I was in Japan one time, and um, again, we'd run into each other on on occasion. But I was in Japan one time. I was working out in the gym, and this was this was a great moment for me because. So I'm working out in the gym. I'm working out on one side. Terry's on the other. And he comes over. He goes, hey, I just wanted to you know, mention to you how important your dad was. And he went on and on about my dad. You know, that my you know, my dad really set the tone for him. And he patterned a lot of stuff after my dad, besides his own dad, obviously. And when he did that, I just remember sitting there. And I think I told this story. You know, when some people give you compliments is one thing. But when, you know, when guys like Terry are sitting there telling you how great your dad was and that, you know, your dad was a major influence on his own career. That was pretty special. So, you know, from that point on, we kept, we didn't keep close, but we kept in touch. You know, the last few years, I've probably talked to him once every couple, three weeks. Now, with that, all that outstanding talent, I would just jump back to San Francisco. Uh, uh, when got Carl Gott first came in there, was, was he noted then to, to be the Carl Gotts that we know of today, the tough guy? And, and, and if so, uh, what, what did they ever stretch anybody that you knew? 
I mean, look, Carl didn't necessarily go around. Well, the, Carl had a couple incidents in his life that kind of defined him here in the States. One of them with um, um, Nature Boy, <laughs> with Buddy Rogers back in the day, right? Uh, him and, um, come on, uh, big guy. He was a dentist. I'll think of his name in a minute. Bill Miller, Dr. Miller. Bill Miller, yeah, Bill Miller. Obviously, you know, the, that incident is, you know, well, that Tell incident, us about the bad incident with, uh, who was the person? I don't know. I don't know what led up to it, but um, ultimately, I guess Carl didn't favor the fact that um, Buddy didn't take care of guys in the ring, according to him. And yeah, I, I got Carl's side of the story, obviously. Right. And then uh, you know they got in. They got into words, and before two, you know, all of a sudden Carl's slapping Buddy, and somehow Bill Miller's in the thick of it. And you know the the word afterwards is that they jumped him and. But you know, this is this it's it's become wrestling folklore. I'm not sure yeah. really I'm not sure exactly what happened. Again, I just got Carl's side of it that that Buddy was the kind of guy that Carl didn't particularly like and he they had words and Carl slapped the crap out of him. And then, Carl, and then Bill Miller jumped in. I guess he jumped in somehow. I don't I'm not sure why he would, because it's not like Carl couldn't handle himself. But you know, I mean got look, Gotch was a you know, Gotch was a difficult guy and if if left to his own devices here in the United States, he he probably would have just, I mean, he had a decent career up in New York. He was, you know, he tagged with Rene Goulet. I think they took the title up in New York at the time. But just short of that and his reputation, he wasn't really going anywhere in the States where he could have gone if he had kind of been nicer. <laughs> and you, then, you, Jody, do you think that was because of his reputation and how he had carried himself oh, sure. that, he, that the promoters didn't trust him to... Uh, to be a champion or something like that because he had all the tools to be a champion anyway. Yeah, no, that that's the exact that's the exact reason. Look, who wants to get in the ring if you're not sure that somebody's gonna really work with you or 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 um you know demolish you. Yet yet in the same breath, you know, I would talk to my dad and my dad would say he would have matches with Carl and he would have to tell Carl to you know to let him know that he was even there because Carl was so light. Was has Carl was was Carl as uh, you know people are talking about he's maybe the greatest shooter of our business was was that what you think as well? Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, so a lot of people a lot of people look at him and they look at some of the other guys that are considered you know the Billy Robinsons of the world and 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 others you know Thez Lou and you know they'll talk about you know sort of like you know who if Superman Batman sort of thing right. <laughs> um, but I was I was there front and center when all these guys would be together. And without a doubt, you always knew who the alpha in the room was. You just knew by the way that Billy was around Carl, by the way that Lou was around Carl. I mean, I sat, you know, I, I sat and had late night snacks, you know, wine and cheese and bread. And I was a young kid, so I just sit there and shut my mouth. You know, Billy would be sitting there and Carl would be there. Sometimes Fez would be around. I mean, what whatever, whoever would be there. Um, Tony Charles would show up now and again. And I was just this kid. I was just flying a wall with all these greats. And I would just listen to them talk. And I always, I just always knew, you know, it, it didn't take much to, it didn't take much to pick up on the fact that Carl was, Carl was the alpha male. So that's pretty much you like just saying, if you're a baseball fan, you're sitting in the ring, you're sitting in the room with uh, Ruth DiMaggio and Mantle. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's pretty much, <laughs> pretty, that's, I mean, that's some pretty good names that you're sitting yeah. with. I mean, that's history. Yeah. As far as, as far as shooters go, you know. And we, I mean, they talk almost, you know, to the wee hours of the morning. Carl would have, Carl would have a big jug of Italian wine, um, you know, 
just table wine, big jug of Italian. He wouldn't go spend a lot of money on wine. He had big thick pieces of bread and he had some cheese. He had some he had some olives, and everybody would just sit there and snack and drink wine. And again, I was a kid. I'd do the same, but I'd sit back and just listen. And I was you know, in hot heaven. You say that now, and people look at it. Literally, it's Ruth Mantle and Dimaggio. I mean, that's the legends of our business. Did you know then? How great, how what great of an opportunity it was for you to sit there, or were these just your dad's friends? No, I was I was pretty appreciative even then. Because I knew so I knew who Carl was when I was a young kid. In fact, he scared the crap out of me the first time I met him. Because he was a he was a pretty imposing figure. That was the first time we went to that's the first time we went to Florida to meet up with my dad. When my dad was living on Clearwater Beach, Carl came over and you know, I had a chance to meet him as a young kid. I was probably, I don't know, six, seven years old. And, uh, you know, here's this monster of a man. He was, uh, you know, he had the, that typical, you know, um, German, you know, that German, very stoic kind of look on his face. And he was, he was a monster. I was scared to death of him. But I knew, I, you know, but I heard stories all that time while I was growing up as who, who he was. And everybody kept kind of putting an emphasis on that. And then one day my dad came to me and says, hey, uh, you know, I talked to Carl. He's coming in from Hawaii. He's going to live here. And I asked him if you would train if he would train you, or you interested in doing that. I said, of course I am. So um, that's how you know that's how my relationship with Carl started. And then I you know, stayed with him pretty much on on for every day, every single day for like seven years. You know, you, you, a, you mentioned something too, where you're, you're sitting around with this group of guys. You know, that was the way of the business back in those days. I was fortunate enough to come along, you know, during those days too, where you didn't have a lot of entertainment, so you you went over to a guy's house. You brought some wine with him. You brought the, the cheese and the bread and stuff like that. And a group of guys would just sit around in their house on a night off, you know, they're just telling road stories and everything like that. That must have been something for a young man, and you know, to just just be a part of that, knowing knowing who these guys were, not knowing what their future might bring, and not how how historic it was, but. Man, these were these were the modern day gladiators of your time, and you, you have the privilege of sitting around just listening to their wild stories. And I would imagine, you know, in those days there were some really wild stories passed around the table. Yeah, and and even to the you know even for me with Carl, just on a one on one basis, that was most of our lives. I would sit there. Yeah, he was a he was a big drinker, not a you know he was he wasn't a big drinker to the point where he couldn't stop drinking, but he was a big drinker. He, you know, he liked his, he loved his wine. He loved his, he loved his uh, Slivovitz. Um, he loved, you know, a variety of, a variety of uh, beverages. And he was sitting, he drinking, he had, you know, he would chew sometimes. He had snuff. I have actually bought him a little container for snuff and he was a big cigar guy. So we just sit there and we talk for hours. And, you know, a lot of it was him just, you know, recounting his life and in particular his time when he grew up and, you know, he was in a, he was in a Nazi work camp. Well, yeah, um, I was going to add something. Thanks for bringing up that question I, was, I had for you. Carl's background during the Nazi training, how much of that did he share with you? And what, what stories do you recall him from? No, he shared, he shared a lot with me. He shared a lot with me about him, you know, working on the railroad when, um, um, you know, he was, when he was working within the Nazi work camp and the fact that he didn't have any food. And um, there was an incident one time where, you know, he, he came across the table, he ended up killing a guy and how his regrets were for doing that. But, you know, it was in the thick of, it was, it was in the thick of terrible circumstances. You know, some people say he was in a concentration camp. It wasn't a concentration camp. It was a Nazi work camp. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't Jewish. It was just 
part of, uh, you know, what was going on in other parts of the world. They had, they had obviously had their concentration camps where they were, you know, um, taking care of the, you know, they, they, they were enacting the Jewish, you know, the Jewish solution, right? Um, but, but in other parts of the world, they had these work camps doing the Nazis bidding to build out different parts of towns and stuff like that. So I guess it was somewhere near Antwerp at the time. And um, yeah, the one, the one interesting thing about Carl, and I've never met anybody else like this, when you would watch him eat, it was almost like you could, you could enjoy the food by just watching him eat because he was so appreciative of having a meal because he didn't have food for so long when, you know, he had to fight for food when he was in this camp. Um, pretty, pretty amazing guy. So he was just a conscripted young German boy, right? Well, he was, he was from Belgium. I mean, he, you know, everybody points at him as being Germany as German, you know, his German history in his, in his family, but he was, he was from Belgium. He was a, from the Flemish side of Belgium, which is the Flanders. And he grew up on the waterfront. And I mean, he paints a pic, he painted a picture for so many years of where he lived that I have in my mind's eye, the exact, you know, this is the exact picture of how he grew up and where he was when, when, uh, when he first started with me, I mean, I was a scrawny little kid and he would use, and he started calling me Herr Gelman. And I'm looking at him like Herr Gelman, who the hell's, well, come to find out that Herr Gelman was a pharmacist in his neighborhood. And that pharmacist had no neck. (laughs) His pharmacist had a big head. He had no neck. So, and his name was Herr Gelman. So I didn't have a neck at the time. So he would call me Herr Gelman. He thought it was funny. I didn't necessarily think it was very funny. <laughs> I did. I did do a lot of bridging. Yeah, it is funny though. No, it isn't. <laughs> so I did do a lot of bridging gymnastics to make sure that I wasn't here Gilman for long. So if you I had just, a so if you had a sweater, you'd smother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, Jody, when was wait, it? Wait, 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 Jerry, just say it. So he had a joke that he had that only he and maybe Herr Gelman would understand, but probably not even Herr Gelman would understand because he didn't know that he's the point above the joke. Yeah. So it was a joke that it he's took- probably the only one that got caught. Yeah, until he finally explained to me what he was talking about, which didn't make me feel very good. Well, the first time, so the first time he ever came to watch me wrestle, I was at USF. I was on the match at USF, and Masao Hattori had just shown up into Florida, and Masao had come off of you know being an, an international guy in his own right and being a pretty good, you know, bringing a pretty good guy on the mat. And so he was, he was coaching me. Masao was sort of my second coach. John Heath handled me way before that. So Masao's coaching me. I'm out. And so I invited Carl to come and watch because Carl was thinking about taking me over and, you know, really bringing me along. And he came out and well, I made the mistake. I made the mistake and I don't know what the hell I, I wore, I wore long tights and they were white. And so I had these long white tights. So from there on out, I became Casper. <laughs> Gelman to Casper. Casper. Well, that was before he started with the Gelman stuff. So I was Casper at first. And then uh, so I, I looked at him, I said, So um, what do you what do you think? And he looked at me, he goes, You're the shits. <laughs> that was his critique. That was his Carl wasn't easy. Carl wasn't easy on you. It was about it took 40, it took 40 some odd years. Swear to God, took 40 some odd years for Carl one day in his house when he was at the end of his life to look at me and go, you know, I was really proud of you. Yeah. 40 some years. Like, <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't have done that a few years ago. So we had some time. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Jody, do you recall any stories that, that Carl uh, shared with you on how he became, I said, talented in, in the shoot fighting as, as he 
eventually did. Yeah, I mean, it's trainers and, and all sorts of stuff. It's it's pretty well known. I mean, he um, you know, when he discovered that there was that there was a submission stuff over in Wigan, you know, the catch is catch. Everybody says catch is catch now. You know, Carl was just, you know, when you would talk to Carl back in the day, you were a hooker, which nowadays yeah. you say that and everybody laughs, but you know, you were you were a hooker, you were a shooter, you just you just were a submission guy, and you. First and foremost, if you ask Carl what he was, he would say he was a wrestler. And then he was a wrestler who did submission. He was a wrestler who was a shooter. And he discovered that Wigan, you know, in in the UK was where you could go and you could meet these guys who were just amazing at submissions. And so he went and he stayed there. And again, there's a lot of stories and some of them conflict as to how good he was or how good he wasn't. But when push comes to shove and he left there, he was pretty damn good. And the one thing about Carl that made him really good was I don't care when you approached him, whatever period of time in a day or whatever day of the week, he was always thinking about how to take something and make it worse. By worse, I mean worse on the guy that you were applying it to. He just, he, you know, he was a real big guy about leverage and, you know, mechanics, biomechanics. And even though he didn't have the formal training, you know, anatomically or whatever, but he just, you know, he knew if you just switched this up a little bit, you could make it happen and get the submission without really putting in a lot of effort or having to use a lot of strength. It, it was, it was his whole, whole life. Um, you know, just sort of, just sort of enjoying his food. So was he in the work camp in Germany until the war was over? No, he got out before he got out before the war ended. And I'm not sure exactly how, you know, what his, what his length of stay was, but it was enough to really, it was enough to really impact him. I mean, you know, one of the things that Carl always said too was, you know, he was in the Olympics in 48 uh, for Belgium. And he said he didn't have enough time between, you know, when he left the camps and his recovery period, he didn't have enough time to really get back to where he could have been. And he swears up and down that he, you know, he would have, he would have fared a lot better at the Olympics at that point. But, you know, his, his whole soul was so, you know, his whole soul and physical self was so depleted from going through what he went through. And he, then he had to go to the Olympics. He, you know, he just, but he was, st- he's still representing the Olympics. He had two guys that he trained one. Um, I think it was in 58 or no, it was in 60 in Rome or before that. Anyway, he trained one guy who took a silver um, behind this guy, Sasahara, who was, uh, you know, from Japanese out, he was from Japan, obviously. And then he had another guy, this was Jeff and Joe Mewis. And the, the other guy took gold in the world that year. So Carl was a, you know, Carl had a pretty good pedigree on the training side of the, you know, as being a coach. And this was. So Carl, Carl, Carl must have started at Wigan then when he was like a teenager, pre-teen maybe. No, I think he was a, I think he was in his early 20s, maybe mid-20s. I mean. This was after the Olympics. Yeah, Did yeah, it was after the Olympics. Yeah, yeah but Carl, to make that, even to make the Belgium Olympics, you had to have some awful nice skills. So yeah, that, oh, he was. I mean, he was, you know, I mean, as far as Belgium went, he was national champion and, you know, and had all the, had all the credentials to make the Olympic, you know, to make the Olympic team. He was just, he wasn't, because he was so taken down from his experiences, he wasn't ready to really do his stuff on an international stage. So the Germans, uh, the work camps, the difference, they captured these young people, I guess captured is the right word, right? Yeah, pretty much. And then forced forced labor they stick them in a camp and make forced them labor camps yeah forced labor camps so any anything that needed to be done with infrastructure you know rebuilding building rebuilding doing whatever in that area 
you know, for the purposes of the German, you know, for the purposes of the German community that if that is taken over, um, yeah. Carl was responsible. Carl, Carl always talked about working on the rails quite often. So I guess he was out doing whatever he did on the rails. And he, and he killed a man over food one time. Yeah. 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 Which dove over table, dove over table and had to kill a man over some food. You're not going to tell us that story. I mean, he didn't go. He didn't well, go. Guy, to, we I mean, got he, you here to tell a story. He didn't go into detail. I mean, it's, he didn't say like he didn't. He didn't say like he had a fork. What, what was the food? <laughs> was it like a pie cake? It must have been good. I mean, you don't kill. You don't kill I don't know. You don't kill a guy over lousy food. Yeah, you won't tell us the story, so we don't know where to start. I, I ain't telling you. What story. kind of food are you going to get? Was it like a lamb chop or something? Was oh it? My God. Was it? <laughs> That's the story. That's all I know. And now I can't ask him. You know, the sad thing is, is when we're growing up and we're kids, we don't really, we don't really pull a lot of stuff out of, you know, our seniors. Right? It's sad that we don't do that because later on in life, people ask us a bunch of questions. You're like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Like people are going to ask me about you someday, Gerald, and I'm going to say, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you know my life story, man. You you, you harass me all the time. You you you're part of my life story. So anyway, let's let's yeah, go. Well, let's wait, go. We're going to get to the point where you harassed him and were mean to him, Mister Briscoe. No, he was a referee he and he was a bully to to the talent as a referee. I a, bully, a bully referee. A bully. Oh, referee. I didn't know that. I didn't realize yeah, that he was a bully referee. I didn't know that. I didn't realize that he was the bully. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't me, John. You know oh, that's me. I'm terrible. I, I, I had no idea. Oh. I had no idea you were innocent, Mr. Briscoe. Well, thank you, John. And now you do. Now you do. Yeah, he's he was as innocent then as he is now. <laughs> <laughs> so, John, you got any more war stories you want to know about? <laughs> no, because it's just like he killed a guy over lunch. Yeah, it just Ooh. goes on. Yeah, I, I get okay. That, that, all right. That. So when we go out to eat, Gerald. You better behave. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to. <laughs> I don't want you to get mad at me, man. <laughs> just gotta, I, I think the guy just didn't want to share food. <laughs> we had uh, Mickey Raphael on our, our show, and he told a story. He's a harmonica player for Willie uh, Nelson for since seven Yeah, Jerry was telling me. Wonderful, wonderful guy. Great stories. And he tells a story, and he says, yeah, I was in the Piggly Wiggly with Ringo Starr, and he just keeps going. Wait a minute. You're in the Piggly Wiggly with the Beatle? And, and that, that that that's kind of like your story right? yeah he killed a guy over lunch and then he got out and he went to the olympics <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's stuff in the middle but I don't know. <laughs> no, who cares yo? <laughs> so how did you the so you end up when you end up training with gotch gotch came in this he's not living with you guys is he? he's living he's just down no, in no we were so you know there was there were some apartments in tampa they were called river garden apartments and it's where a lot of the boys stayed so we had we had our unit up top and Carl had his unit literally his his apartment was right next door. So if I came down my stairwell, I walked over and I went up the next stairwell and that was Carl. And so I would How I'd many get, times did you avoid that one stairwell though? I never avoided it. I I, I wish <laughs> I I probably would have been smarter if I had at least a little bit because I I lived I lived no life Part of the thing is when you get into wrestling, you really do it the right way, or at least you think you're doing it the right way. You don't do anything else. So I lived, I probably lived more in Carl's apartment than I lived in any place else. I was there more than I was in my in my own house. I was there more than I was any place. I mean, I didn't, I didn't even go on dates because Carl 
saw you know saw girls as weakening you <laughs> <laughs> did, did carl train you in his apartment well he trained me in the apartment or we go downstairs and we go out there a little quadrangle between the apartments so we'd go out there and we work out sometimes we get so he'd get up sometimes four o'clock in the morning and he'd go outside of my window and it could be it could be middle you know not that we're talking we're talking middle of the winter in florida so you're not talking you know 15 below or something but it was cold and you know he'd call me and i'd come downstairs and we do squats and work the clubs and push against each other and kind of go through move you know standing standing stuff um by the pool and you i mean i every once in a while you see the curtains just kind of go like this and then they'd go you know in some apartment somewhere and then they they'd close and you just know the person was walking in there going these guys are freaking crazy. <laughs> so four o'clock in the morning, he would just holler at you, and you're in bed. You're going, you got Joe, it. Joe. Yeah, and he had a he had a pretty pretty big booming voice with a. How old are you? How old are you? How old are you, Joe? 14, 15, okay. Is that when you very first started with Carl? When you're. Yeah, fourteen years old. Four, I was fourteen when I first started with him. How many squats would you do on average? Let's say an average day, like you get in there at four o'clock in the morning. What would squats were they were were they your warm up? Um, yeah, I mean, you pretty much every day you were doing 400, you know, we're doing 500 to a thousand squats. Um, 500 was pretty regular a thousand every now and again. Most I did, most I ever did was 3000. Now we're 47 minutes. Um, Carl did 9,000 in four and a half hours. Wow. A lot of, that's a lot of squats. And back then it was, you know, back then, I mean, now, now my squat, Carl used to get on Matsuda all the time because Matsuda's squat was like, so he, you know, he busts he busts balls back then. Um, now my squats are like that, but back then you you had to go all the way down. Yeah, so three thousand times up and down, huh? You still do them? Yeah, just limited range. I mean, I still do them, but limited range of motion. I can't go all the way down. Anymore. If I go all the way down, I ain't getting up. Somebody, somebody has to come in and pick me up. <laughs> and I can't count on Jerry because he's mean. He is mean. He is mean. They always ask me every once in a while, I say, can you take a bump? Yeah, of course I can. I can't get up, but I can take a bump. The odds of me getting up by the time the show is over is not good. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Shamrock told me a story one time. He told us, me and Jerry, he may have been on the show here, where he was, Gotch was in there his office drinking, and he drank a lot. And he decides he wants to work out with the boys, and he came out there, and literally he ran everybody off but Shamrock, and Gotch was the only one left with Shamrock. And he goes, "Okay, let's go back to drink some more." And, you know that was Gotch after drinking a lot. How good a shape he was still in. Yeah, even in, even a tough in, old guy. He was just a tough old guy, and he um, you know, and he just had this thing about him, man. He 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 was um, he was always he was always on when it came to wrestling. I mean, I think he could have. I think he could have stopped. You could have went into his bedroom in the middle of the night and said, Carl, let's wrestle. And he'd be like, okay. <laughs> he just, he, he started wrestling. And when, so we, we were in Japan, we had a dojo in Japan. It was Fujiwara, um, myself, and um, Ken was part of our dojo at the time. In fact, I was, a, I was a tag team partner with Shamrock. He was one of my tag team partners in Japan with All Japan back in the day. Those were some interesting times. Ken, Ken was best off going over to the UFC. <laughs> Uh, but we had some great times and um you know carl would come and meet us at the dojo when he was over when he was over in japan and yeah he just he brutalized everybody there was nobody there was nobody that could really stand up to him had ken already started been fighting some by the time he came over to the dojo uh, not really uh, he was just kind of at that point in time he was really just getting his feet wet and pr with pro yeah. and then as he got to know carl and he got to know fujiwara and you know um 
uh, Funaki and Suzuki, who started Pancreas at the time, that's when he started making that transition over into MMA and, you know, becoming the Ken Shamrock we all know and love. Tell, tell us a little bit about your, your, your workout with Carl and how it differed from a traditional workout, different cardio or, or wrestling workout. I mean, first and foremost, we didn't, you know, we didn't use weights. The only, the only weights we ever used, well, we used Indian clubs, the big ones. So you have the big Indian clubs and you have the little bowling pin clubs. How are you good at those Indian clubs like Sheik? Can you produce four of my Sheik? Wow. Cosford once told somebody that I was better than him. Now, John, John, John's got a set. Unfortunately, he's in Texas where the clubs are in Maryland, so he yeah. can't demonstrate <laughs> how, how good he is at it. I ordered, I ordered a starter set. They're like they're like they're like baby clubs. They're like little bitty baby clubs. And and I did it like one day my shoulders almost blew out. So <laughs> I hate this. Yeah, Carl had these Carl had these things. <laughs> there you go. Well, you've got that. Don't you have that shake weight? Yeah. <laughs> shake weight, shake weight. <laughs> yeah, Carl had these things. They were probably, I don't know, they were probably about two feet, maybe even three feet tall. And just to hold them up was a battle. They were they were heavy, but the heaviness was really in the fact that they were so long and just so awkward. They were hard to work, but they were the best shoulder workout ever. And then you know, we do a lot of, I mean, we do still rings at that point. So the, the hardest exercise was working the still rings and doing what they call muscle ups. So you take a false grip, you know, the, the ring lays in there, you pull yourself up, you change your position. You do a, you know, you do a, you do a push up out of the ring, you come back down, you, and then you hang again and you do that. There's, that's a, that's a muscle up. Carl believe you, you're, you're coming over to my house Friday, I believe to pick me house. up to buy me dinner. Yeah, I'll show, I'll show you. That's what you got to do muscle. There, there's a park right now. Have rings, so I can take you out there. And, all right, Joe, show me your ring workout, and you can do all the rings. With my shoulders, I can't even hang from rings anymore. Well, why? Come on now, you did all those damn muscle things. For yeah, and that's why I can't. That's why I can't do anything anymore. That stuff. That's, <laughs> you know, it's great. So when now you're, I can you're, take advantage of you for a change. You know? No, you can't. <laughs> no. no. Wow. You hear that, John? You hear that, John? <laughs> So, hey, Joe, let me ask you a question because you train this way. Uh, and I've always yeah. been curious about this. Guys who train do a lot of squats, the bridges, the clubs, and stuff like that. Do you think your joints are better off having done that older in life or worse off? They're worse off. They're worse off only because part of doing that brought in other things. So, for example, when we went back into Bridget, when we went back into a bridge, Carl would. So I take a I take a I take an Olympic bar with 45 pound plates on it. I'd snatch it and then I'd go back into a bridge. So when you do that, I mean, you know, the your your neck just isn't the bridging is okay. It still takes its toll. But when you start putting some weights on, I mean Carl used to have so I was this kid, I was a buck sixty-five, buck seventy-five, and Carl was two fifty. So I'd get in a bridge, I'd be almost touching my chin. And I'd have to hold it. I, you know, if I if I was left alone, I could hold the bridge for about thirty minutes. But Carl would Carl would get on me and literally just sit on me. So I'd have two hundred fifty pounds on me. Well, you know, it's one thing to do it by yourself. It's another to have two hundred fifty pound guys sitting on you. Um, yeah, and just just ground the neck down. So I I have three discs replaced in my neck, and I attribute it to all of that fun stuff. If I would have just if I would have just stayed just do, doing regular bridges, I'd probably be fine. I'd I've been blessed to not really have any knee problems and I've done I don't know, hundreds of thousands of squats. Um, the clubs didn't bother my shoulders that much. What bothered my shoulders was the rings 
because we used to have to do these things called dislocks and inlocks where you literally dislocate, you know, you dislocate your shoulders to go through on the ring. Not really good. Right. <laughs> you know, you pay, you pay a price for it later. I just was always curious, you know, like uh, you see like old bodybuilders, you know, some of them are very good, you know, the guys who lifted heavy and obviously, you know, enhanced themselves a little bit along the way the body was taken, was taking too much weight on for the, what the body should take. Uh, they're, they're all beat up, you know, and guys that do squats, you look at them. I just, I've always wondered that uh, dynamic, which, which is better for you long-term to do like the free body squats, do the, do the weight workouts. Uh, because the problem is very few guys just do one by themselves. Guys who used to do the free body squats, a lot of those guys have also done a lot of shooting, mat wrestling, and gotten hit a bunch. Yeah. So you don't yeah. really know which is which. I mean, I started, you know, like like most of us who wrestled, I, I started I started wrestling when I was like seven years old. So be, you know, besides the pro stuff, where you you know, you, you take your it, that takes its toll. I mean, you, you add the amateur stuff into it and the submission stuff and. Yeah, after 30, 40 years of doing it, you can't walk away. It's kind of hard to walk away unscathed. Um, I mean, I'm well, kind of hard still... to walk away from God too, when he lives next door to you. Yeah, that's true. Well, so you, what, what brother, John? What John Heath, your first coach, and he's the one who took you at seven. And he, he was so he was my first coach, and that started at uh, Eddie Graham's All American Youth Camp back in the day. Yeah, down, yeah, down here by where Carl lived, down Lake yeah. Alice area. Right, yeah. He lived on Lake Tucson, but at Eddie's camp was Lake Alice area. Is that did you help start that camp, or you one of the first students there? You and I was one. Of, I was one of. The, I was one of the first guys there. Who, yeah. who all? Who all? That that's what the crowd would know was there. Um, I mean, Eddie would come in and out, and he was old. Look, he was always Eddie. My dad had their stuff through the years, but Eddie was always really good to me as a kid. Um, you know, he used to let me ride his horse, and he always took care of me, and always kibitzed with me when he was around. Um, Frank Zane, who was one of the you know one of the premier bodybuilders of his time, kind of a a very symmetrical, smaller physique, but very symmetrical. You know, he had certain poses that were his pose. He uh, he taught archery out there. Which was kind of neat. Um, Buzzy Buzzy Heinrich, who ended up becoming a judge here in town, he was my he was my he was kind of my camp counselor, the guy who took care of my bunk area. Now Buzzy was he uh, Walter's son or? Yeah, yeah, he was, he was Walter Heinrich's son. I didn't even know that until later on down the road when I was I was talking to Mike Graham, and I said, yeah, you know that kid who was taking care of us, long skinny kid, Buzzy something. He goes. You're talking about Buzzy Heinrich? I said, yeah. That oh, judge. Was, yeah, you know he's a judge, right? I'm not. Yeah. I guess he went from being a tall, skinny kid to a tall, skinny judge. Yeah. Did God's when he's out has you out there by the pool and you're you're pummeling, you're doing squats, you're doing the clubs. Was he showing you moves also? Yeah. But you know, you we couldn't go down to the ground, but you know, we work we would work up top. Um, and there were a number of submissions that you could do from from standing that they're harder to get on and very rarely are you ever going to get them, but you know, you worked on them. Yeah. Something I, I, I you, you can help me. I think I've asked you this question in the car and time, but you know, you had all this training by uh, Carl. I mean, you, your strength and your conditioning and your coordination just had to be superb. Why, why didn't, you know, I, I, your brother, I know your brother wrestled the Tampa Catholic way. Why, why wasn't amateur wrestling a part of, of, of your life? Because once you started with the submission stuff, you just kind of stayed. I mean, for me, I just kind of stayed with it. I didn't. The minute I started submissions, because I just, I just loved doing it at the time. I really didn't care about, you know, becoming a competitive amateur. You know, I mean, 
I was a I was a freestyle guy just by the sheer definition of doing what Carl and I were doing at the time. But then you you know then you're throwing in then you're throwing in submissions. I just don't I just didn't want to turn back away from that because I just I enjoyed it. Now and your was, brother Shelley, he just he didn't get into the gotch training like you did. He was no no no. no. <laughs> Tell us, tell us about how Shelley stayed away from us. Well, he he was he was a he was a funny little kid, and Carl didn't necessarily like funny, so he <laughs> he was him, 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 him and my brother didn't get along real well. Um, and then uh, you know my brother didn't my brother just didn't really want the submissions. I used to man, I used to get my brother on the mat, and I would I would I, mean, I, I feel bad now. What kind of no, you know, <laughs> no, you know, no, you know, no, you don't. I know you not really, <laughs> but I mean. Yeah, I would. He, I mean, he would start crying sometimes, and I would get even tougher on him. And yeah, Jay Malenko would cry. He would. He would kind of. He'd sob. He'd like, big, big alligator <laughs> tears. Big old alligator tears coming yeah. down. <laughs> so Dean would sob, but he, would he sob like a lot? He would. He would. Is this going to get out on the airwaves? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Would he run to mom and daddy and say? Uh, no, uh, he wouldn't run to his mom and dad, but. Yeah, I, I mean, I was tough. Yeah, uh, in the car, you told me he ran to your mom and dad a couple of times. Got well, that was different. Yeah, no, look, he was uh, <laughs> he was four years younger than me. You know, I was kind of coming to my own at fourteen, fifteen. I started really kind of picking up some steam, and he was still, you know, he was still a kid, and he was he was good. I mean, my brother, my brother is a better athlete than I am. Bar one hundred percent, no questions asked. He's a better overall, better overall athlete than I am. But I always more holds than he does. I just felt comfortable. I just felt more comfortable. I knew two more holds. Yeah. I just felt I just felt more comfortable on the mat. I mean, that was my place. Everywhere else, I was a everywhere else, I was the clumsiest guy you ever met. I couldn't you know, like if I, we're know, I noticed that I noticed that a few times about you. If, if we were playing basketball at school, things haven't were, changed. If we were playing basketball at school and they were picking teams, it always came down to some guy picking between me and some other some other guy's grandmother in a wheelchair. And eventually somebody would go, okay, Jody, come on. <laughs> yeah. You go over there, grandma. But <laughs> yeah. Did you I guard the grandma? Huh? Did you have to guard the grandma since you are the last two chosen? No, no. I I was grandma could grandma was shooting three pointers over top of me all day long. <laughs> she dunked over you a couple of times, too. <laughs> <laughs> I was just I just wasn't I just wasn't a coordinated person, especially in especially in anything that wasn't on a mat. But you were a, a shooter even as a referee when you stretched Mr. Briscoe, right? I didn't ever stretch Mr. Briscoe. I, I wanted you to. Abused, you abused God, Mr. I wanted Briscoe. to. He would, well, I'd be refereeing him and he'd reach over and he'd pinch the living crap out of me and I'm, just to be mean. You're in the middle of a match? You're in the middle of a match. That's unprofessional. It is. It, I'm surprised he ever made it as far as he made it. But I, but I, the only reason I put up with it with it is because I was in awe of him, and I I always thought to myself, you know, someday maybe I'll be like Gerald Briscoe. <laughs> oh, let's tell the whole story, man. You 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 were in college, right? Of course, or had to graduate from college. When, when was you started, this? When I, you started refereeing? Oh no, I I referee. I started refereeing when I was in my last part of high school. Okay, so you were a high school kid picking on all the pro wrestlers at the time. Maybe. Maybe. See, he, would, he won't say no, John. So you know what I'm saying is true. Then. So, Mr. Briscoe, was it him being trained by Mr. Carl Gotch? Did that have anything to do with it? I I, I would imagine so because he developed that Gotch attitude. You know, I'll kick your ass anytime. So, when we were walking to the ring one time, man, we're in Tampa, Florida, his hometown. 
he had all of his little Tampa Catholic cuties over over in one corner there. You know, I have his, his daddy's. Yeah, so his. He, bought, he bought a bunch of block of tickets and gave them out to all the cheerleaders and all the band band girls. Yeah, that ain't true. That's true. Well, no, yeah, you wouldn't buy it. Okay, so we're walking <laughs> to the ring. We're walking to the ring. Go ahead. We're walking to the ring, and then and I, hey, we get in the ring, you know, everything cool. And I'm trying to talk to him as we're walking to the ring, but, you know, he's a tough guy. He, you know, had that look on him, that German look on him, too. You're like, Carl got look at him. I will kick your ass this time. I won't kick your ass this So we're out there. He said, give me your hand so I can shake your hand back in those days. So I punched him in the stomach. I can't just put my hands up. You know, that got him mad right off the uh, bat there. So we start going. And so he, he had, you know, you, you know, referee, he's got a good referee. You can play around with him a little bit. So I was just playing. Sue Schwartz and I used to do this all the time. Sue would, and Jody, he he was big Stu Schwartzbar too. So when Stu would count the referee, he'd always drive his hand underneath your shoulders, you know, make sure your shoulders were, were down. And so Jody dug his hand into my shoulders. It kind of hurt. So I just went back like that. And I slapped <laughs> him on the back of the head. And now he's getting really mad. I can see that little bald, that big bald head of his. his it wasn't bald back then. I had hair. His, his Gilman head. His Gilman head. <laughs> it was out of Gilman. Neck on, without a neck on it. You know, but, it started yeah. to get bright red. So I knew I had it. So then after every move that I would make, I would always make contact with the referee. That's how they teach you how to do it. Make contact yeah. with the referee. <laughs> well, that's how you did. Nobody else did that. <laughs> You just everybody, did that. Everybody, everybody was afraid of you, Jody, because you had them all bluffed in the, in the locker room. I did. It was all it was all a bluff. You call my bluff. I think you said to me, I think you even said to me, like, who'd you ever beat? And I'm like, I don't know. I guess I never really beat anybody, but yeah, you you hurt my you you hurt me and you hurt my feelings. It took me a long time to recover. He <laughs> hated he hated me for 30 years afterwards. And 35. 30, 30, okay, well that's who count, but 35 years later he was still mad at me. So one day we're out for lunch, you know, we go out for Russell's lunch, lunches, and, and he he's mad at you 30 years? After, 35. After, yeah, wow. 35, yeah. 35 years he carried this grudge again. I've always noticed Dean and I always were really good friends. We always got along really well and all that stuff. But man, Joe didn't come around and it was like, no, oh, man, okay, yeah, I know you're a pharmacist. I know you're a big guy. I know you're smart. <laughs> you know. Can you write me a script? <laughs> but anyway, anyway, you know, yeah, we're 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 traveling along and we're at at uh, luncheon, and he brought it up. He finally wanted to get it off his chest, so he brought it up in a group of guys. You know that guy there used to pick on me all the time as a kid. Nobody felt sorry for Jody. You know, no one. Everybody yeah. felt sorry for me because they knew what kind of abuse that Jody was giving out as a referee, overstepping his boundaries as an official to the NWA. He even had one of those little patches on his shirt that I'm I official. Did. <laughs> I did. I did. I should have kept that shirt, but now, but now Jerry and I have um, a semi pseudo bromance that we're both comfortable with. So, Jody, you you've forgiven him. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're getting a scoop right here, right here, right here. I want to hear it. I, I say I, I forgive you, Mister Briscoe. I love I, you. And I I'll never break it up again. I forgive you, Mister Briscoe. I love you. I'll never bring it up again. <laughs> and I'll and I'll never celebrate Columbus Day. Our <laughs> Thanksgiving. Oh, Thanksgiving. Our Christmas. I, well, okay, now you push it. <laughs> now push it. Happy Hanukkah. <laughs> Mr. Briscoe gets so mad about Columbus Day. 
I just, it's just outrageous. I say, I sent him a note every Columbus day and I have for about 30 years and, and on Thanksgiving. 35. Yeah. 35. <laughs> I can never forgive him. I've already said, keep that grudge at least 35, John. And and, and on Thanksgiving, he always sends me a, a message to a Thanksgiving greeting. Well, it's but nice. God, to, it's nice. It's nice to know that I'm just not the only person that's ever irritated you that I'm in good company with Columbus. It's me, <laughs> it's me Chris. Who else pissed you off? <laughs> uh, Andrew Jackson. Yeah, Andrew, Andrew Jackson. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's put his picture on a dollar bill. <laughs> what, what, what's he on, 20? He's only 20. Okay. You should know that. Don't you have a <laughs> bunch of them? Don't you have a whole bunch of them stashed away in your house? Somewhere, somewhere in these walls there. I don't know which wall it is. <laughs> it's the only time he can put up with Andrew Jackson. Yep. Mr. Briscoe holds long grudges. They really long grudges. You know, one time, uh, Jody, I, Mr. Briscoe signed up for a, a retirement home in Texas. <laughs> they called him and asked what he's coming and all this stuff, and, and uh, he claimed it was a mistake. I don't know how it happened. I'm not sure how it happened. It was right here near where I live. But he said, yeah. I, all of a sudden, Jody, I'm at the body shop, you know, and I, I get home from TV and I all of a sudden I'm getting these phone calls. I'm getting it from Richardson, Texas or somewhere. Mr. Briscoe, we notice you're near retirement age. You know, we have oh, this is legit. Oh, this yes. is legit. A hundred percent. A legit. We have we have we have a wonderful retirement village out here in, in, in Texas and we'd like to invite you out. Then I come home and I start getting these Texas monthly magazines, you know, you know, the, the monthly yeah. magazines that states put out, Tampa monthly and all that stuff. Where in the hell is all these damn things coming from? These phone calls. I'm getting so many phone calls at the body shop, the, the office manager there, she's starting to get upset. All I'm doing is answering phone calls. And they only come on days that you're here at the body shop. They don't yeah. come on. So John's the only one who knows my schedule. So I'm I'm in a dressing room one time uh, working with some guys getting a finish. And I hear John over in the corner with Ron over there. I hear, you did what, Ron? You did what, John? <laughs> I, 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 I got called this deal. It cost John about 50 bucks to sign me up for all these magazines and all this. He did. But he, he's ratting himself off to, uh, to uh, Ron. And I'm I'm, I'm, I'm earshot. So finally, I just stick a. So there were all these damn things. <laughs> I'm having a I'm having a family reunion gathering at my house one day, and all my relatives from Oklahoma walk in. There's a stack of friggin' Texas monthly magazines there. Man, <laughs> what are all these magazines there? I said, well, I'm That's thinking about buying a retirement building. <laughs> <laughs> I sent him a three-year subscription to Texas monthly, <laughs> Texas Parks and Wildlife, and I signed him up for a retirement home in Texas. That's hilarious. <laughs> If you ever do end up in one, I'll come visit you. Well, you thank you. I will. You know, I will you around. You will me around. Yeah, yeah, you know, you. One here in Texas, Mister Briscoe, I can come see you all the time. Yeah, you know, you're right there, close by where you live. I, I thought that was nice if you put me in the same neighborhood with you. So. Well, I want to see. You. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jody, how did you get into referee? What, what, what? Tell us, walk us, walk us through that that phase there. You're you're out of school now. You're or what? What? Tell us a little bit. I was in the uh, later part of high school. I, you know, I don't know exactly how, how old I was when I started refereeing in Florida. Um, but it was one of those things where, you know, my dad, my dad talked to Eddie and said, Hey, you know, just, if he wants to be around the business a little bit, you got anything? And Eddie said, yeah, we can, you know, we'll give him some referee spots. So um, that's how it happened. And I started traveling around refereeing here, 
I went up to went up to the Carolinas. I'd go back and forth out of the Carolinas. I'd referee up there. I wrestled a couple times, but mostly I was just refereeing. Um, I really didn't start. I didn't really start wrestling in the business until I left the Carolinas down for Mexico. Yeah, went, speaking, oh. speaking of that coming in, when you were when you were here and you started refereeing, and you were still you were training under under Dodge at the time, correct or not? Yeah. So did Eddie ever ask you to come down and, and do the roof thing and 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 get in the room? Yeah. No. Yeah. No, but in the Carolinas, when I went up there, the Crockett's took me and they used me for guys who wanted to get into the business. So I would go down, I would go down to the auditorium there, and guys who wanted to get in the business would have to wrestle me. And the whole the whole deal was, you know, look, we're gonna put the rep, you know, you want to get into the business, we're gonna give you the referee. If you can't make your way through the referee, what chance do you have in the business? But I would go and I would, you know, I'd, I'd do the typical thing. I'd blow them up a little bit. We'd do some squats and stuff like that. I was pretty decent shape. So they do, we do squats and stuff. And I think pretty much every single time, I never had any issue with anybody. Pretty much every single time, I don't think anybody ever got in the business. They all, uh, <laughs> I probably did this. I probably did this 20, 30 times. At the end of, at the end of everything, these guys would just look at me and go, nah, I, I can't do this. And they would leave. But the Crackets were, I'd go back to the office and the Crackets be looking at me, you know, did you do this? And did you do that? And did you, you know, I'm like, no, I didn't. I, I always thought that I'd have to kill somebody, put them in the back of the car, drag them to the office in Charlotte, throw them on one of the Crackets desk and say, okay, is this good enough? <laughs> um, you know, the way, the way I viewed it at the time is people just want to get in here and they want to give it a shot and maybe make a living. And they had every right to do it. I mean, they had as much right to do it as some of the boys in the business, right? Yeah. So, you know, why, why give them that hard a time? And again, that at the end of every time that I ever worked out with a guy, they always said the same thing. Like, yeah, this is, you know, this is too much. I'm not, I didn't buy, I, I don't buy into this and, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And then, and then they just leave. Yeah. That's more and more or less the, the, the way Jack and I went, when, when we were down here and uh, Eddie, Eddie getting the ring with these guys would, Jack is, you know, Jack is a really nice guy. I'm like me, Jack oh, is a super nice guy. Yeah, Jack, I like Jack, Jack and I would just <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, you I, like Jack. I liked him a lot more. Well, I know that. I like Dean yeah. a lot better, too. So, <laughs> Dino's a thousand and one legit. <laughs> but in, anyway, you know, uh, we go down and we just wear their asses out, you know, uh, cardio wise, you know, just wrestle them and put them in those chips. But, you know, there wasn't no need to really, the way we saw it, we saw it the same way as you did, you know, why, why, why abuse a guy when you know you're going to abuse him, you're just taking advantage of you're being a bully at that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you just cardio them out, all right, all right, Bob, now you get in there. Let Bob come in or he will come in and they're already tired and they would they would slap the, the sugar I know. or whatever. I, I not, you know, I, I felt sorry for some of them, but, but others, you know, others were smart no, ass some, and they just deserve it. There there was a guy there was a guy up in Jacksonville. I was working for I was working for Curtis and um uh Colette at the time. For Louis and Don, and there was a guy at the at the arena. He just got he just got out of prison. Pretty big guy, and he was a and he was a jerk. And so he was one of the few guys that I ever got in the ring with that you know I I made sure that he wasn't going to be a bother afterwards. Um, but he was the only guy. I mean, everybody else was just kind of like, hey, I'm here to give this a shot. I always wanted to get into wrestling. Um, they were nice guys. I it used to bother me. I mean, I talk to Rupa about this all the time. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I could ever. You know, some they they brutalized some people, and I, I I didn't I don't believe that. That's that's not what you do. And even Carl would not do that. Uh, the Carl didn't have that mentality. You know, he he 
it's not like he'd necessarily give you a shot, but he wouldn't he wouldn't use and abuse you if he felt like you couldn't hold your own. Did you ever witness any of them down at the sportatorium? No, I didn't. I, you know, I, I witnessed a few of them, and they were brutal there. Yeah, so I, I heard. I with, heard. With, with, especially with with Bob. I mean, and and at that at that point, Matt Matsuda would 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 do what Jack and I did, just get them in there and wear their asses out until they couldn't breathe anymore. And Bob would run yeah. in and, and start slapping his hose off. And speaking of, of Bob Roop, uh, uh, John and I were talking uh, uh, pre pre show here a little bit, and uh, we wanted in to, our pre show meeting, we're we're very formal. Very formal, yeah. We have pre-production, <laughs> pre-show production meeting, all that. So our whole crew comes in and, and we yeah, go around, our, around our pre, big round pre, table to discuss all this. Our pre-production you got a little side table. You got a little side table with coffee and some, you know, some snacks yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. Our pre-show meeting, pretty much, Jody, is I, I call Mr. Briscoe. I say, Mr. Briscoe, who do we have today? And he says, we have a show today? <laughs> I think so. I think so. What is today? And we we look at the calendar and go, oh, it is Wednesday. Oh, here it is. We have Jody. That's wonderful. A great awesome. You, ready. you know you are ready for the home, right? What <laughs> <laughs> home? The one that John got me signed up for? for the one the one where you'll have some built-in friends. Yeah. <laughs> people take built in friends. I like that. <laughs> I need friends. <laughs> you do need friends. Yeah, yeah. I talk, I mean, I talk to Bob all the time about it, and it always always bothers me when he kind of talks about how they used to handle things. Uh, or you could have ended up like Tim Woods, who was, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, that's what I, I always worried me, because that's the only story I ever remembered, you know, when I would get in the ring with, don't be like Tim Woods, don't give this guy a chair. You know that, you know that story, John? I don't know. Yeah, he, um, he went to hook a guy in the mouth. Atlanta, and, Georgia, or where was this? Georgia. I think so, yeah. And the guy bit his finger off. Really? Yeah. Really bit a bit whole digit of his damn finger off. Yeah, yeah. And Tim was, I mean, Tim Tim was a good hand, man. I mean, Tim, he, Tim was a national champion, two-time yeah. All-American, Michigan State. Yeah. Yeah. Why was he going to hook him? Was he was it just a training session, or was it in the in the match? No, it was he was working out a guy, you know, who wanted to get into the business. He stretched him and roughed him up, and he's going hard on the guy, and he, you know, you know how you come in the they, I mean, there's hooking and there's kind of tearing. <laughs> And so, you know, to get a to get a guy to turn, sometimes you come inside that cheek and just pull him whichever way you want him to go. And usually the guy goes. Tim wasn't cautious enough to keep his finger all the way to the side and get it against the cheek. And the guy just uh, said, Yeah, I'm I'm not gonna do that. Um and I haven't eaten today. So <laughs> Wow. Bit his finger <laughs> off. Bit his finger off. What happened then? Uh, he went the rest of his life without a finger. <laughs> well, he kept, I think he kept it. I think he kept it. I think he kept it in his pocket. It, it gave a whole new meaning to giving people the finger. He, he yeah. spread it out. He spread it. He rolled his sides out and spread it down in front. Yeah. Here's the finger. <laughs> but anyway, though, before John interrupted me, or rather, I'm sorry, Mr. Briscoe. To get to was Roop and 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 a and a, and a, and a historical time in our business there. Involve your dad and Bob Orton Jr. I think you know where I'm going. That Plan B video. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. What What's your opinion of that? And what What, what do you think that thing? Because you know that's to me and John. I mean, we discussed. We think that's one of the biggest things that ever happened in our wrestling business. Yeah. You know, and and that we be, really just you know, be under the table like it is for so long and 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 not really discuss it. I think is is a, is a disservice to what we do. It's amazing. Well, I know you. I mean, I'm pretty sure you talked to Bob about this. He was on the show, right? Yeah, yeah. We had to look yeah. Bob, and we talked to Fuller about it too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, well, uh, <laughs> I'll give you a quick update. 
Mr. Roop said that the video was aired. It was a preemptive uh, in case they, they decided to ban them from the bid or something. They're going to throw the nuclear option out there and plan the video. They said the Mr. This was Bob Roop's words. He said, I, I want to paraphrase. They'd never used the video, and the video was deep sixed, and he didn't know how it surfaced a few years ago. Was what yeah, that's, I mean, that's the that's the exact deal. I mean, look, the you know, for years and years and years in the business, as as far back as I can remember, be my dad's son, there was always this issue of you know we're independent contractors, we're left to our own devices to handle all our finances and all our stuff on the road, and it just wasn't fair. And some guys barely scraped by. You know, you had some people who did okay, but the the average guy, I mean, what were people making? That's why, you know, that's why there's all these stories, you know, the, the, the world of professional wrestling is replete with all these stories about people who had nothing at the end of their days, right? So, you know, my dad was one of those guys who was always in the thick of things looking to see if they could corral a group of guys to effectively unionize and force the hands of promoters around the country. And every time that that would happen, my dad would get a phone call. And it was like, hey, Larry, <laughs> um, you can go take that, you can go and attend that meeting with these six other guys. But if you do, you'll probably never work in the United States again. And of course, he had two kids, and you know, my dad would back off, and then it would resurface again. It was it was that movement to always try and figure out how the boys could take a hold of their own, you know, their own destinies at least at some level. So when they went up, you know, when when they went up, and I was with them when we went up to Louisville, and they had some they had some amazing talent all pulled together. Um, it was it was due to that very same reason, you know, the the territory at the time was viewed as a territory that wasn't paying these guys what they should have made. It is what it is. And they just wanted to make sure that nobody interfered with them. So they did what they did to be able to have that last, you know, that last um, shot. Of, it was more than a shot across the bow because this would have been a shot directly into the ship and the ship would have sunk. Um, although now we are where we are and, you know, it's not that big a deal because everybody knows what the video. It, it, I had never seen it. So when it resurfaced so many years later and I had the chance to see it, um, I was amazed because I couldn't believe, I, you know, these are guys who would have died prior to breaking kayfabe. Um, and then all of a sudden you've got them putting this into a video. And I was, you know, my dad's sitting there and he's saying what he's saying. I'm like, holy crap. I would have never dreamed that my dad would put that. But like you said, it was really never meant to surface. It was just that, hey, we've got this sitting here. Um, and I don't know if, you know, did the Fullers even know about it? Did anybody even know about it on on the other promotion well, side? Well, right, right. He was on our show. And he said he he had heard something about the video, but but didn't had no idea what it was. He didn't know until it came out a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. Literally, he had, he had, they had warned him to say, hey, we got this, they, we got something for you. But he had no idea what it was. He had no idea it was a video. He had no idea who was on it. He didn't know until a couple of years ago, from what he said, that this video even existed. He couldn't believe yeah. it had been under wraps for this long. John, did he did, did he did did he tell us that he, uh, Slater was the one that came to him and said there was that's, a video? That's the word. Yeah, I mean, that's I, right. Well, that's he right. did say it was Slater. Because apparently uh, Rupe had talked to Slater, and then Slater yeah. went to Fuller and said, hey, just want to let you know these guys are yeah. going to start competition against you. And so Slater was the one that stayed loyal to, to Fuller. I did I did hear that. Well, I mean, he stayed loyal in the sense that he blew the whistle, but he didn't correct, stay loyal. Correct. However, however you want to phrase it. For one side <laughs> has him as a turncoat, one side has, has him as loyal. Yeah. But, he, but, I mean, he was working he was working with us at the time. He came over, you know, he came over because it was Ron Price and – yeah, Ron Price and my dad and all those guys, Ronnie Garvin. I mean, he was he was working in our crew. 
Um, had you ever heard of this video before? I had no idea that it existed until I saw it the first time. And I just went, holy crap. And, and the amazing thing for me, again, was just my dad, where my dad's saying what he's saying. And, and it just, it's just the antithesis of who my dad was at any point in time. In his, in same, his with or, same with Orton and Garvin. Yeah, yeah, same yeah, Garvin, yeah. I mean, the, the, that's a that's a future Hall of Famer, future NWA champion. That was WrestleMania one. I mean, yeah. this was this was 1979. This was half a decade before the the 60 minutes piece or 2020, whatever it was that exposed the business and way yeah. before WrestleMania. I mean, this this was let. I mean, this is something I can't believe it stayed under wraps. And it was, the thing about it, we we figured John and I was on some initiative and figured it was just meant directly toward Jim Barnett so when they started talking about the other issues. Yeah, a lot of it was targeted, obviously, towards Barnett when they talked yeah. about uh, what the homosexuals in, in wrestling. Yeah. That was specifically targeted, had to be, for Jim Barnett because he was the one coming into that territory, and he's the one that ended up getting it right after that. So that was targeted. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's no doubt there. I mean, that's that's a that's a definite. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's pretty amazing. And just like you say, for something to be under wraps for – for so freaking long and nobody ne it never see the light of day and then all of a sudden boom it's there and especially in this business here i mean you know we, we yeah. you know, every, everybody knows everything in this business telephone business. telephone telegraph tell wrestler yeah. you know what i don't understand as many fans love you know, the hardcore stuff you know and J jerry and i do too you know the, the inside scoop you know these old stories and things that's why we do our podcast but the, the, this to me, I don't know why it doesn't have 10 million views. You look at the video, I don't know what it has now. It just had a few thousand last time I looked at it, which was several months ago. But yeah, I, I don't understand why this is not a bigger story, why this is not a documentary, why AE doesn't do this to me is a huge thing the Battle of Knoxville and this video that was made as this nuclear option that was most likely, it looks like, never used. And nobody knew about till it came out a couple of years ago. And I don't know how it came out. There's got to be a trail for that. There's got to be electronic trail that somebody put they, posted. Somebody posted this on YouTube. You, you got it. I mean, how did anybody even get this thing? Who the hell were they? Yeah, who knows? Yeah. And right. I, you know, maybe maybe it wasn't picked up on and really become viral as everybody says because people look at it and they go, "Well, we know all this now." You know, we. I mean, it's not a big deal because we know all this. If it if it had hit. You know, if it had hit not too long after or, you know, not too long after the video was done or or um, just prior to when there were exposés about the business, it. But then, of course, we didn't have social media. We didn't have the web. Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. How, how what what medium would they have to to get yeah. it out there? I mean, except for TV and what TV station is going to offend somebody that I went at that time. As you know, we had to buy time. Everybody had to buy time yeah. to get on local TV. Yeah. So that was a 52-week guarantee that the TV station had. Who would want to play something like that to, to expose the business? And look, uh, the guys the and market. the guys who were in this, I mean, they you know, they weren't they wow. weren't they weren't the Joe Malenko jabronis of the world. They were exactly. I mean, here's your dad, the one of the greatest all-time stars, and you Ronnie Garvin, you know, at that time, Ronnie was as hot hot as anybody in the country on his Bobby way was to become an NWA champion. Bobby Orton Jr., up-and-coming star, you know, second-generation star, and Bob, you know, Olympian, you yeah. know, All-American boy and all this stuff. I mean, so, yeah. But all those guys ended up leaving there and having a hell of a career, you know. Yeah, they all did fine. Yeah, they all did fine. 
Yeah, and that I just don't. I, I'm not sure I quite get the mindset. I mean, it just that's a that's a zero sum game. I mean, if you yeah. let that if you let that video out, you better win, because if you don't, you'll never work again. I mean, you know what oh, I'm saying? Yeah. If, you, if you put that out there, and you don't use it as more than just a threat, you actually put it out there. You better win because if you don't, you've lost huge. You've got nothing. You've got nothing. I don't, right. Look, I don't know. I mean, you're talking about a bunch of guys who were really great guys and phenomenal hands in the ring, but you know, were they were they the ultimate business strategists? <laughs> probably, probably not. My dad wasn't a. My dad was definitely not a good business guy. He wasn't necessarily thinking about you know, okay, what if this, then this, and what if and. I think it was a, I think it was a knee jerk. I think it was a knee jerk thing to what was going on up there at the time. And they were already, you know, they were already facing some issues. I think when this came out where, you know, they were having trouble getting venues and certain people were pulled away and not, you know, them not able to run the way that they want to run. Um, they were struggling, you know? Yeah. The whole war, it, it killed Knoxville for both sides. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. And then Barnett was the one that ended up coming up. Then they got it. Yeah. Yeah. So that worked real well. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, your, your main wrestling, you, did you enjoy being in Japan? And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And you ended up tagging with your brother over there. You, you were the dojo with Ken Shamrock. That's pretty cool. Yeah. No, look, Japan. So first and foremost, I, I never wanted – I never wanted to be in the business full time. I mean, if it had if it had happened, I I guess I wouldn't have turned it down. But I never wanted that. My dad always told me early on. He says, you know, make make sure you have something as a backstop because you can't count on making enough money in this business to secure yourself for life. So um, you know, I went to pharmacy school and I did that. But I had the opportunity to go to Japan the first time through through Gotch, and um, it was a shoot. You know, it was a shoot organization at the time before I started going for all Japan, New Japan and stuff. So um, I just, I fell into it. It was a good fit. They, these, a lot of the guys were more mat work guys and it was just, uh, and my gimmick was no gimmick. I mean, so I, you know, that Jody, whole, Jody back up and shoot organization. What, what organization was it? Oh, UF, uh, UWF at the time, which was uh, um, uh, Tiger Mask, Satoru Sayama, uh, um, Maeda, Takada, Fujiwara. Yeah, it was a group of guys who got together and it was, you know, it was, it was effectively stage shoot, you know, not stage, but it was, uh, it was predetermined shoot fighting. Yeah. So it was the first time it was really the, the it was pre, really kind of predated the MMA stuff because it, you know, um, at the time, Sayama, which was Tiger Mask, he was doing Muay Thai. So he kind of, he brought the kicking into it and, you know, they started kicking and then you could open hand slap. Um, so it was a, it was a it was the start of MMA in Japan, which was really the start of MMA all over the place. And then and then you know then Fujiwara started his Gumi, uh, Fujiwara Gumi. Then then the two guys from there, Funaki and Suzuki, went and started Pancrase, and then Pancrase morphed into a more legitimate shoot style. They had their rule set, and when UFC started over here, a lot of the guys in Pancrase came over. Pancrase created so many UFC stars. I mean, it was. Ken Shamrock, it was Boss Rutten at the time, who's a Hall of Famer. I mean, Ken and Boss are Hall of Famers for UFC. Uh, Chris Lytle, I mean, just Nate Marquat, just a whole bunch of guys from Pancrase and the original Japanese start of all this eventually, you know, came over here and became 
very important parts of the mixed martial arts community and what became the UFC and you know and has now become this behemoth and now is in tandem with you you know WWE right what what experience uh, professional wrestling wise that did you have or did you need any experience when you went over for this particular well, I was already I mean I already had I already I was re- I had pretty decent chops by the time I got there because I had been you know I've been in um I've been in Mexico and I worked Mexico some, and then I was working here. Well, in the who, who broke you at our style? I mean, a professional style. Wasn't Carl? Was no, I mean my dad. My dad did, but before I went to Mexico, Abe Jacobs, who just passed yeah, away recently, ninety-nine years old. Hey, Super I'm gonna bring up guy. a night. I, 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 I posted, you know, condolences to Abe Jacobs, ninety-nine years old, and I got a text message. And you remember the great Bolo Al Lovelock? I mean, yeah, he was sure. around near death. You know, he's still alive at a hundred and three years old. Holy living in Wedger, Ontario, Canada. Wow. And he sent you a text? Uh, he didn't know why one of his friends did. And I said, of course, me being a podcaster, I said, is he well enough to do a podcast? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <At 107. laughs> wow. Wow. But Abe, Abe was a super nice man. New Zealander. He was yeah. a national champion. He was, in he was um, yeah, he was Don. He was Curtis's partner for a while. Don, right. Don and Abe were partnered for a while. Right. Yeah. yeah great, great guy. So he, he kind of gave you the ins and out, and that's when how you got the, the ability. Well, the so that was that was the start of things so that I could go to Mexico City. And I lived in Mexico City for four or five months. Um, I thought I was doing pretty well there. I mean, it was it was difficult because, you know, that whole Lucha style is a tad different than we see here in the States, although we've now learned what goes on. I mean, you know, we've got the Lucha folks front and center nowadays. They didn't they weren't around at the time. So when I was down there, I thought I was doing okay. And there was a magazine deal and I got in this magazine. I'm like, Oh, I got in a magazine. That's pretty neat. And you know, it was all in Spanish and I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> Spanish by any means. It wasn't until many years later that I, a buddy of mine from, uh, from, um, uh, from Venezuela, I said, Hey, you know, look, I was, I was in Mexico and he's reading the magazine. And he kind of stops for a second. He looks over me. And I said, why was mad? He goes, well, they pretty much said you sucked. <laughs> I, I, I was all i was all proud i was all proud of this article i was proud of this article for like 25 years and just yeah yeah you're showing and all your spanish-speaking friends going hey look at this yeah. article. <laughs> I, was, I wrestled in mexico <laughs> this is how good i was <laughs> i was carl gotts jr yeah. that was my name in mexico city i was carl gotts was jr it? Well, yeah. did carl, carl know that came up Carl booked me. He he's he got Flores to book me in Mexico, so I went down there. Five hundred bucks a week at the time, so this was seventy eight, which is a decent deal. And uh, you know, so I go I go down there, and before I leave, Carl said, "Hey, if you want, why don't you take my name?" And of course, I thought, "Wow, that's pretty neat." Yeah. And Carl had a little bit of a reputation down there because a bunch of the guys knew him, like Felipe Hanley and stuff like that. And so I went down there with his name. Well, that was part of the problem. Is because yeah, that, that could be a blessing or a curse. Take a it was a curse. curse. Well, that that was part of the curse <laughs> because people ex, you know, people expected something from me, and I fell a little short of the mark. I didn't know that though until much later. And then <laughs> I didn't find out a plan about Plan B until decades later. I'm just I'm so behind the times. <laughs> well, well, bring us up to time. When when did the wrestling schools uh, start, and who all did you have pass through there? Because that that, that was a Tremendous school going on. You guys taught the basics of, of, of the sport there, and and the guys come out of there. They had a really solid foundation. How did that start, and when did it start? Where we were probably um, 
man, I don't know the exact year, probably mid mid seventies, maybe again, like right as I was coming out of high school. Um, and then lasted for a long time. And, and, you know, we just, everybody that would come in, we just put them through the paces. Carl was kind of coming in and out. So he would teach some stuff on the shoot, shoot style, which guys got to incorporate into their work. And, um, yeah, we were, we were blessed to have just a ton of folks come through. And the one thing that we kind of, you know, one thing that kind of easier is I stand proud on the fact that we, we put out guys who ended up making careers of this. You know, it wasn't just that we were putting out guys who were working independent shows, made for 25 bucks once every two months. You know, we had a bunch of guys who ended up going on and doing well, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the X-Pac, one, two, three kid, you know, um, Gangrel. Um, Would you around when, when Sean come through here? I mean, he was a, oh, he was, he was a, he was a little, what, what did he weigh, 145 or 14. I think he was like 14 years old. At the time. Wow. It was maybe 135, 140 pounds soaking wet. And, um, yeah. And Bob Cook and, right. you know, who's just a good, Bob was just a good solid hand. Bob always tells the story. I forget who, maybe it was Grilla Monsoon or something. So he was somewhere and he was supposed to work against somebody and Monsoon comes to him and says, so you're going to get ready to go out there. You know, who, who trained you by the way? And Bob said, Oh, Malenko. And I guess if it was Grilla, you know, Monsoon, if Monsoon if it was Monsoon, Monsoon turned to him and go, okay, well then you're fine. You know, Bob, that's Bob's story. So now he can't tell his story. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sean at X-Pac. That guy was, I worked with him, I don't know, 50, 100 times. You know, he is one of the best workers I've ever been in the ring with. Yeah. He, was, yeah. he was so good. His 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 knowledge of the business on the fly is just outstanding. You know, he would never make a mistake and reverse and throw a big guy off the ropes. He just, everything he did made sense. I mean, it was just yeah, he was a he was a good hand, and he um, yeah. He, he, again, he just he had, the the most important thing is the guys had careers. You know, they they made livings out of this business off of the fact that they came to the school, and and I used to I was one of those guys who always did the I always did the thing with guys who come to the school, and I would say, look, here's the deal: the chance of you making into making it into this business is the chance of me ever becoming Jerry Briscoe. So. So slim to none and slim just left town. So as long as you know that and you're just doing it to have some fun and maybe make 25 bucks every couple months, you're fine. And anything from there is gravy. I just, I always did, I always did that disclaimer because I didn't want to hear from somebody down the road that, um, you know, you promised me I was going to be a superstar and, and here I am, you know, flipping burgers. And, and um, yeah, we had a significant number of guys. Mark Miro, who was uh, Johnny B. Bad. Um, tugboat. I think I mentioned I mentioned Fred tugboat shockmaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I go to you, you personally told him that move, right? Yeah, I, I go to <laughs> and the joke I have is his son uh, Berkeley there works at yeah, WWE. yeah. It tells me tells me all the time. He goes, you know, Dad sells the original shockmaster mask at the end of every convention. <laughs> he, he's 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 embraced it. I mean, it's great. I well, love no. I love Fred. I follow yeah, him on Instagram. I, I hardly ever do anything on there, but he he's all I love Fred. I, I I tell a story the first time. So my dad my dad had this little car. It was like a Gremlin or something like that. I don't remember what the hell it was, but it was small. And we're living over in Carrollwood Village. And my dad drives up. I'm standing outside. My dad drives up, and I'm not seeing my dad. I mean, it's like who the hell's you know how many guys are in that car? And then my dad gets out of the one side, you know, driver's seat, 
And this other guy starts to climb out, and it was like he just kept climbing out. He's huge. <laughs> like, he is a huge man. Oh, holy shit, that's a big boy. <laughs> always, always, I told him the joke that we had about Berkeley is that uh, Berkeley is Shockmaster's biggest mistake. <laughs> Fred, Fred laughed like crazy because I've never heard that before. I said, "Oh, we'd say that about Berkeley is a great. I don't know if you know Berkeley. Berkeley is a great. Oh, impression. Yeah, good kid. Just the nicest guy. Laughs, takes ribs, ribs people. He's he's a fun kid. He was there yeah. and tortured uh, Tony Chimmel for years, which we we were very <laughs> thankful for. <laughs> Joe, Jody, you, you, we we've dropped dropped the the p word here several times. Pharmacy day. You you got you you made that your 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 profession when you got out of college and you 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 saved your money all through that and everything. You, then you became a, a businessman here in Tampa and you, you spread like crazy. You had some experiences with our ex president Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't think John knows anything about that story. Can you you kind of enlighten John about the Trump Tower deal that you had going on here in Tampa? Yeah, and then my experience with Donald Trump is very similar to my early experience with Gerald Griscom. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> interesting interesting but painful <laughs> <laughs> only i grew to love jerry i didn't necessarily grow to love donald i no, don't we, think you ever will <laughs> no probably not um no we were in uh, you know for all practical purposes we were in business together we had a licensing agreement with him to use the trump name but it was more more than that he was really our partner and we were going to develop a tower in town and everything was kind of scampering along and we had all the press in the world because it was donald coming to town and we were bringing him and uh, yeah, and then all of a sudden, the whole world of real estate just dropped out from underneath us. I had already left the I had already left the business at that point and was bought out, but I still got sucked back in because my name was on a lot of things. So it was a it was an interesting time. <laughs> you know, if if the timing had been different, we would have built the biggest tower on the coast of you know on the Gulf Coast of Florida, and we would have been heroes. We were we were I mean it was sort of like um, you know there's a guy Jeff Vinnick who owns the Lightning here in town. Yeah. And he's got a big, you know, he's he's obviously a big player and he's done some amazing development stuff downtown Tampa. And uh, you know, we were we were Vinick before Vinick was Vinick. But you know, again, circumstances and timing weren't on our side. But I I mean I had good dealings with him. I, his his senior legal counsel, a guy by the name of Bernie Diamond, I mean, I became good friends with him. I, I don't see him much anymore, but every time I would go up to New York, we'd have lunch and kind of get together and talk about days gone by and yeah, it was a it was a neat part of my life. What what do you do now, Jody? I know I I talked to you. We we had a couple of scheduling conflicts. You were you were out speaking to some groups. What 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 should Jody Simon do now? Yeah, I'm uh, so I have a I have a company with a group of docs and like Reader's Digest version is when people have you know when people have cancer and they have a tumor, they take a little sample of the tumor, they send that to a lab and the lab sequences the tumor and they get the genetics of the tumor. And then there's certain markers in those tumor genetics where there's variations and there's drugs that are targeted towards those variations. And that's how targeted therapies are then used for patients to help them at least live a little bit longer life. It's not like the old days where chemo was just put into you and hopefully, you know, it killed everything and hopefully it didn't kill you. <laughs> it's much different now and it's, it's a much better approach. But doctors don't quite understand the whole world of cancer genomics. So we have a company that helps kind of give them a one pager that they can use to go into the office, you know, to go into the exam room with their patient and say, here's, here's, here's where we're going to go. I've got these expert, experts behind me. 
guiding me and tell me what we need to what we need to do. Um, it's called clarified precision medicine. Yeah. Jody, did you ever think about getting into MMA yourself once it was starting? Yeah, I did. And then I then I stopped thinking about it. <laughs> well, no, no, I mean, number one, there were, you know, there were there were parts of it that I just wasn't ready for. And I I wasn't I wasn't a striker. And look, I always know that you know, if you're on the street is one thing, but if you're in a contained environment and somebody's able to hit you and they're really adept at being able to throw punches and I'm not that guy. It just takes one shot and all of a sudden, you know, I'm sitting there in a corner of the same nursing home as Jerry Briscoe. Yeah. The road <laughs> Down the road from you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I did I did think about it. There was a there was a moment where there was a three fight deal with one of the um oh come on, who's the guys from Brazil? Um Gracie. Gracie, one of the Gracies. There was a three fight deal that was kind of on the table, sort of kind of. And I just said, nah, I'm not I'm not gonna do that. I mean, it, it was just, it was just weighted too heavily towards, it, it was weighted against being a wrestler and a submission guy and too heavily towards what they did and what, you know, what jujitsu you know. that was weighted towards jujitsu. So. Yeah. I mean, look, we, yeah, we never, Jerry, did, would Carl, you ever, did, Carl, did Carl ever have any jujitsu training with you guys? Nah. I mean, he, look, he went, he went into every dojo imaginable over in Japan and it just, was more grappling and, 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 and it was all grappling. grappling. Yeah, it was all grand, but but all of it's based out of. I mean, who, you know, the cavemen didn't have geese, you know, and they didn't do jujitsu, but everybody wrestled from the beginning of time, so everything is based off of wrestling originally, right? Um, and you know, for you, how, how many times, how many times did you ever drop to your own back on the mat? Oh, uh, that's uh, you know, been a been a high school wrestling <laughs> coach. That's one thing you yeah. walk in with a with a group of five six year olds okay we're gonna we're gonna learn how to do wrestling first thing they do they drop to the back yeah <laughs> and i just i scream <laughs> yeah yeah so the you know the first time i ever saw the gracies and their style coming in you know gracie the brazilian jiu-jitsu stuff and people taking you know people taking their back and you know getting people into garden laying on their back i'm like god oh you know i mean yeah i, I got a roster I got hives. <laughs> what a roster cringes every time he sees. Yeah, that, I got. I, I, had, I had hives. Carl's Carl's famous expression again. This is one of my many stories that I keep recycling. Uh, whenever you would be on your back, Carl would be go get off your back. You look like an old whore waiting for a customer. That was a stand, <laughs> that was that was a standard line every single time. And when you're a young kid and somebody says that to you, you're like, oh, okay, I don't want to look like an old whore. So I guess I'm I don't want to be a whore. Yeah, <laughs> not, well, definitely not an old one. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Why? Why? Why do you got to get the old people? Nothing. <laughs> well, Jody, hey, thank you so much for coming on our show. I've been looking forward to this for a, ever since I saw you last in, uh, I guess, Vegas, right? When you got the yeah. award and yeah. Uh, yeah. gave such a great speech. I told Mr. Briscoe what a great speech you gave. Oh, thank you. Thank that you. was awesome. Uh, I was yeah, funnier. Yeah. I was funnier then. <laughs> <laughs> you were very funny. You're, you were very you, you, funny. You're Brian Nobbs stole the night, John said. No, Brian Nobbs. Brian Nobbs stole the night. Brian Nobbs put Brian Nobbs left me in the dust. <laughs> that Holy was God. one of the craziest things I've ever been a part of. I, I thought I thought it was awesome. I don't mean it in a bad way. I thought no, that- me too. Me too. I just sat there. I was I was hysterical. I was just and and it didn't and it didn't end. <laughs> no, it never. It, 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 they hadn't pulled the hook and played the music. They might still be there. 
Yeah, they'd be there today. It's like when the Sheik gave his Hall of Fame speech. We were all we want to do is watch Sheik go off the rails, and he gave this really nice speech. And then somebody yelled out something. He goes, "I break his leg, Bubba," and then he goes off on something. We're like, "Yes, yeah. here we go." Yes. Here we go. they're just waiting for Sheik to go off the rails. Awesome stuff. Man. But the good part about it was Brian never started on the rails. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> Can't go off something you're never on, right? Yeah. That's exactly right. Hysterical stuff, though. But thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. It's been it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Look and uh, look forward to seeing you again. And apparently, you and Mister Briscoe are friends now. And uh, he says yes. he says you're buying him lunch. Well, that's the only way I stay as friends. <laughs> Me too. No, no, no. I, I just, could get I could get a free lunch in just about any time. There I is no free it. lunch, Briscoe. But but, but but I what I can't get is a chauffeur driven Mercedes Benz driving in my driveway picking me up free lunch. And, trying to taking, make my way and through, then taking trying to me my way through the jungle. Yeah. yeah. Trying to make yeah, my way through the jungle that is your driveway. Yeah. Yeah. He bitches because all the plants, all the snake plants growing out in the driveway. So he, you know, gets little tiny scratches on, on that black Mercedes Benz. Okay. Enough. <laughs> yeah. You, I get a drive. I get a drive. I shuffle driven. Why wouldn't you go to free lunch in a Mercedes shuffle driven Mercedes? But he won't wear the damn hat for me, John. Uh, if it if you'll be nicer to me, I'll start wearing that. I'll be nice tomorrow or whatever. Thank you. It is. <laughs> Thank you. Friday. <laughs>